in Shakespeare's play Hamlet, as many of you maybe studied it in school, but in that play Hamlet, he's visited by the ghost of his father, and his father tells him exactly what's happened, how he came to die, and how Hamlet's father died was that his brother Claudius poisoned him with a drop of poison in his ear while he was sleeping. So Hamlet's father was king, but now Hamlet's uncle, his father's brother Claudius, is king. And there is the ghost of his father tells us to Hamlet, who seeks revenge for what he has experienced. And then really the whole play is about just that, avenging death. Hamlet pretends to be crazy amongst all kinds of other things. And it ends, how will Claudius, Hamlet's uncle, dies. How? Because he takes a drink of the poisoned wine. And there's a sense of a complete circle in that, a bit of poetic justice, isn't it? The very thing that Claudius used to kill his brother is what kills Claudius. It's poetic justice, or, or a bit ironic perhaps. We might say that Claudius is literally getting a taste of his own medicine. And that's what Jacob is experiencing here, isn't it? Jacob is being deceived. The trickster is tricked. And as we've worked our way through this over the last number of weeks, haven't we seen, especially in those early chapters, you know, where Isaac and Rebecca were longing for children, they were gifted with two, and nearly as, maybe even before they were out, these boys were at war with each other. And we saw how Isaac loved Esau and Re- Rebekah loved Jacob. And there's these teams and the, the family favourites fracture the family. Red-headed Esau sells his birthright, the blessings of God, for some red stew. Jacob dresses up and the trickster tricks his father and dressing up as Esau to get this blessing. And now the red-headed Esau sees the red mist and Jacob is on the run. For his life. Rebecca sends him off. And Isaac sends him off to find a wife. In Rebecca's home place. And on route he has this dream. A ladder to heaven. We learned last week. Well, we, we try to steps to reach heaven. We can't do it in our earthly cells. But we need to be trusted in Jesus. He is that ladder as he says in John's gospel. And we need Jesus. But as Jacob is sent away on this journey, as he has met with the very Lord, he has spoken to him, he has encouraged him, he has told him about these promises that they are his, he arrives at his destination and he forgets. This is our first thing this morning. Don't forget your dependence on God's providence. Don't forget your dependence on God's providence. Jacob's journey comes to an end here. He, he beats the proclaimers in this as he walks 500 miles before they ever did. But as Jacob comes to this destination, there's lots of, and I've called them, just so happens. There's lots of things that happen that are just so happens, but they're not that at all. It's God's hand. So if, you're, if, if you have a Bible, it's really helpful to follow along. In verse 4, Jacob arrives at this big well. He's east. And he says to these boys that are around the well, where are you from? Well, they're from Haran, that place where Abraham left and where Abraham's family, the rest of them stayed. So that uh, just so happens, isn't it? Of all the people he ever met, <laughs> could meet at the well, they're from the very time. What happens next? 
Why else we do this, don't we? If you hear I'm from Margaret Hill or where different people are from, well, do you know so-and-so? I remember being holiday and Americans asking, oh, from Ireland, granted. Oh, do you know Conrad from Cork? No, that's just ridiculous. But here's a just so happens, isn't it? Jacob says, do you know Laban? (laughs) They're like, well, yeah, of course we know Laban. Of course we know him. You know what else happens? He then says, well, how is he doing? He says, well, don't ask us. Look at us coming over the hill. It's his daughter, Rachel. Just so happens to be coming over the top of the hill. And Rachel, she's a girl. Obviously. This isn't what ladies do in this time, is it? She obviously has no brothers. Ladies aren't shepherds. Here she is, really unusual. So it just so happens. Rachel's a shepherd as well. Her name means you or you as well. As Jacob's an indoor mummy's boy, Rachel's clearly an outside girl. So there's that other just so happens to be the case. And verses 7 and 8, it just so happens the men are refusing to open the well for her. So Jacob, what does he do? He does what any boy does that seeks to impress a girl. He steps up and he tries to put the muscle on. This well that is covered, it takes the shepherds, it says there in verse 3, I think it was, it takes a couple of them to, to move this stone off the well. And Jacob, he's determined to show off. He's going to do it himself. And then he waters her sheep. All those things are just so happens. But clearly God's hands in all of this. And as Rachel approaches and Jacob opens this big well and the mouth of the well is hanging open for the sheep to use, Jacob's mouth has dropped to the floor as well. His mouth is hanging open because Rachel is beautiful. It's love at first sight. There's a TV program, you know, Married at First Sight, that's probably horrendous. But this is love at first sight. And there Jacob actually kisses and introduces himself to, to Rachel. And in all of these just so happened moments, Jacob forgets about the Lord completely. Maybe at best, in verse 11, he, he weeps aloud. But I think he's just overwhelmed that he's finally, finally there. And, uh, and that's being generous to him. But he forgets the Lord. He has not been aware of, God's, of his dependence on the Lord. So in Genesis chapter 24, there Abraham sends a servant to find a wife for Isaac. And that servant has an awareness of the Lord. In Genesis 24. So in Genesis 24, you can read it later, the, the servant loads up 10 camels full of gifts and he takes the journey to visit this family. And throughout, you can be able to read it later, there is an awareness of the Lord's leading in it. In verse 12 of chapter 24, the servant prays, O Lord, grant me success. And telling Laban the story of meeting Rebekah, he gives credit to the Lord for guiding him. After finding Rebekah, he bows down and worships the Lord. When Laban agrees that Rebekah can go, what does a servant do? He worships the Lord. So throughout all those just so happens in Genesis 24, the servant rejoices in God's goodness. But here, for Jacob, he has totally forgotten, hasn't he? 
The servant had an awareness of the Lord. And Jacob, the very God whom he had met, he's forgotten about already. See, don't forget your dependence on God's providence. Jacob is clearly still depending on himself, isn't he? He's trying to climb that ladder to heaven some road that just so happens in life. We need to remember it's God's providence. John Flavel is an old pastor writer. He says that we read Hebrew back, we read Hebrew backwards, and that's how we ought to read our lives. We ought to read life backwards. Our perception of good or bad, or even the absolute mundane and dull and boring. God is at work. And we ought to have an awareness of the Lord here in this. Don't forget about your dependence on God's providence. Whether that be with our results, that in school that lead us down and maybe a different path or to a certain place, or even within our work, the interviews that we've messed up or haven't gone on well in, or the ones that we thought we did bad in, but we've got the job, the random meetings that you had to, in dance halls or socials or classes, the friend that you've made on holiday, all because of God's hand. Don't forget your dependence on God's providence. And it's really easy whenever it is good, isn't it? But it's equally true even when it is hard. The turmoil and horror of life's experiences. Still God's hand is there. Genesis 28 verse 15. One of the promises that God gives to Jacob is this. Behold I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. It's no less true if it is good. Heart is darn right horrible. God is still good. So are you aware of God's hand? Here Jacob has no clue. He has totally forgotten about his dependence on his God and on his providence. Jacob has met with Rachel now. And as he has kissed her, she does a runner, not quite, but she runs to tell her daddy who has arrived. And Laban comes hurrying down in verses 13 and 14. Do you notice that? As soon as Laban heard the news, he goes, why? Well, I think Laban's thinking, kerching. Because <laughs> the last time somebody from Abraham's family came, they came and, and Genesis 24 tells us that Laban got, you know, they got the camels, they got silver, they got gold, they got garments, they got ornaments, they got a payday. But Laban's going to be disappointed, isn't he? And after one month, Laban clearly knows that Jacob has nothing and asks him in verse 15, No, are you going to work for me for nothing? What will your wages be? And throughout, Jacob is serving Laban or working for him. It's a slave-like work. So what they agree is, instead of doing a PhD or doing a, being a doctor, Jacob's going to work as a shepherd for seven years for Rachel. So we don't forget our dependence on God's providence. And then our second thing, don't forget the sinfulness of your own sin. Don't forget the sinfulness of your own sin. So seven years pass in this working for Jacob 
and it feels like a couple of days. I mean, no, maybe a sense of that. It might be seven years, but time flies whenever you're enjoying yourself and looking forward to something. And Jacob, you see, seven years, and well, Laban's not counting down the days because Jacob has to go and remind Laban of their agreement and they set up the wedding. But in this darkness, clearly, literally veiled from Jacob's eyes, Laban deceives Jacob. Why? Well, verse 26, Laban explains it afterwards. He says that Rachel's the secondborn. She's the youngest. She can't get married before the oldest. And well, Leah, Rachel is really beautiful. Leah's really not. And that's maybe why Rachel is not married as well. Because no one wants Leah. Verse 17, Leah, we're told there her eyes are weak. Really means she's not a looker. She's weak on the eye. And Jacob is tricked. The next morning after this wedding evening, Jacob wakes up and to his horror, he sees Leah. And the trickster is tricked. Jacob has been Jacobed, if you like. The one who with the red stew was able to trick his brother or to be dressed up and trick his father. He now knows where he gets those traits from. They're not from Isaac, side of the family. But he's very like his uncle Laban, isn't he? Because here Laban has tricked Jacob. And he is an outrage. He's had a taste of his own medicine. And it's that own medicine that brings him down. And God can work in that way, can't he? Jacob is going to be learning the hard way here, isn't he? He has totally ignored God so far in chapter 29, even though he has just met with him. He says, well, yes, I want these blessings, but he's not really following the Lord properly yet, is he? And sometimes we can learn the hard way in life too. We say, well, I follow Jesus. I'll take communion or I'll, I'll worry about serving later on in my life. If you've chosen to follow Jesus and you haven't, you're not going to fully commit to later, God's not going to allow you to live a life of sinful pleasure. It's here, as Jacob goes, they come to another agreement. He has one week to do with Leah, and then he'll be able to marry Rachel, but have to stay for another seven years. Jacob's family that he grew up in was utterly fractured, wasn't it? He's a brother that wants to kill him. And in verse 30 of chapter 29, we get a sense of history repeating itself, don't we? Verse 30, Jacob went to Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah. Domestic difficulties are going to continue between Rachel and Leah, but it'll even go down into the next generation as well with Joseph and all of his brothers too, doesn't it? Jacob has forgotten the impact of his family's sin. Jacob has forgotten about the impact of his own sin. And he just brings it on. But don't forget about the sinfulness of your sin. For Jacob here, he needed to be humbled. He needed to be absolutely broken or even experience his own sin on himself to understand it. Sometimes we don't see our sin or we forget about our sin. And it's not until maybe we have a sin of hatred in our hearts. We don't understand what that sin does or what it is like until we are hated. 
Until we experience our sin, it's only then that we remember what our hearts are really like. You know, we cheat, but it's only whenever we've been cheated against in some way that we really feel it. We are unloving towards others. We don't think anything of that. It means nothing to us. But whenever we feel unloved, we feel it. With our maybe not respecting others and then we don't feel respected. Our greed. Maybe we're selfish. We don't even see it. But whenever people, we can see people being selfish and somehow it does something against us. Who do they think they are? We are lazy and we look at others being lazy and it's only whenever they don't do something for us that we get annoyed. We have anger that boils within our hearts but as soon as that anger is directed towards us well then we're up and we're like Esau the red mist comes down. Our lies, our gossip, the hurts that we say with our tongues as they wag only we don't think anything about passing it out but we're in the receiving end. Hurts. Our sin hurts others. And we forget the sinfulness of our own sin because Jesus died for because of you and you and you. We need to flee from sin, not love it. We need to remember the sinfulness of our own sin. Jacob, he finally has his beloved Rachel, but he doesn't love Leah. And she knows it. And she feels it. Verse 31. There the Lord sees Leah is hated. That's utterly. This is personal. It's like an enemy hatred. It's the same word that is used in the Bible. To describe God's hatred of sin. Imagine that kind of relationship. Leah is unlovely to Jacob, but it is Rachel who is unfruitful because Leah is gifted with four children. Verse 32, we have Reuben, which literally means look a son. It's almost as if Leah said, Jacob, hello, look what I've got for you, a son. And Simeon, verse 33, again, that the Lord's heard Leah. But God uses, and this is our final thing, God uses the unlovely For his glory. God uses the unlovely for his glory. Leah. She's weak in the eye. She's not loved. She is unlovely. And she is unloved. But she's still going to be used by God for his glory. In verses 34 and 35. Although she is unlovely and loved. She's gifted two more boys here. Verse 34. His name will be Levi. And then Judah. Levi, in the hope that somehow that third son would bind them together. Judas, he's just praising the God for another son. But who are these two boys? Can't we see how God, even in the midst of this absolute mess of a family, is still going to work by his grace for his glory? Who are the Levites? These tribe of Israel? Well, they're the, the priests, aren't they? The family from which Moses and Aaron would be from and lead the people out of Egypt and not quite into the promised land but through the wilderness. They are the priests who would offer sacrifices and worship on behalf of the people. And Judah, we know where that is already, don't we? The, The line of David, the royal line of kings from David right through to Jesus. And that is why Revelation, although we're in Genesis, Revelation is able to end in chapter five, weep no more. 
Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and the seven seals. With all this mess, God says a plan of bringing his name glory in this world. Jesus is the only one that can make sense of this story. It's the only reason that we can make any sense of it, and it's the same in our world and in our worlds. From a messy, troubled family, Jacob and the unloved Leah, our Saviour would come. And as Leah was blessed with Judah, and we receive the blessing of Judah, we too can receive the blessing from the line of Judah in our Saviour Jesus. God uses the unlovely for his glory. People like me and you. God chooses the weak so that he can show us his strength. He chooses the poor so that he can show his eternal riches. He chooses the sinful so that he can show us his mercy. We are unlovely. And as we come to the Lord Jesus, we don't need to be made beautiful. Because Jesus came to deal with our unloveliness and our mess and our sin. For he himself is made unlovely on the cross. Isaiah tells us that he was beaten beyond recognition. No one would want to look at him just like no one really wants to look at Leah. Physically, yes, he was unlovely. But spiritually too, because he became sin and God hates it. In the book of Esther, Haman has a plot to kill all the Jews and he lifts up a pole to kill people on and Jews on. He has that sinful intent. And it's that very pole that Haman himself will be killed upon. A sense of justice again. And sometimes our sins we love and we hold on to and God can use those very sins to bring us down. Our sins will bring us down unless we come to Jesus. It's a story of a, of a married woman and one of the, the poorer nations in this world. And there she, she married her husband and he was really awful to her since then. She was really sold to be her, this man's husband. She had no children and constantly she was abused through their marriage. And one day she was taken to the outskirts of the city and she was beaten and dumped. She left overnight but was able to walk home. And it wasn't that unusual for her to be beaten in this way. Nowhere else to go. She just went back to the house. And as she went up to the door, everything was gone. Nothing was there. The husband basically had sold all and was going to live a new life. She was utterly abandoned. No one really took her in at all. So she thought this was a new start. So took to the streets. And well, she ended up selling herself. Ended up in a cycle of drugs and earning money. And years, months go past. She ends up in debt. And again, debt needs paid. She can't afford it. So he's beaten and left again. A man found her and brought her to one of their houses that they had as one of the charities. And she was taken in. Cared for, strengthened, allowed that recovery time that she needed of a few months. But as time went on, this staff member, this male nurse and her grew very friendly. 
and fond of each other. But the time had come for them to say goodbye to her. But what was she going to do? She still had nowhere to go. She still had debts to pay paid. And as she said this to the nurse, he said to her, Will you marry me? She said, But but I'm filthy. He says, But I love you. She says, Well, I'm broken. He says, But I love you. She says, I'm in debt. He says, I'll pay it and I love you. And she sobbed herself sore. Despite of the past, she was loved. Isn't that a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church? An adulterous people, unclean, filthy, messy sinners in great debt who aren't even aware of the sinfulness of her own sin. Jesus says, I love you and it's paid. He says, I've picked you up and cleaned you up. Your history, it's erased, I love you. Your sin dealt with, I love you. Your debt paid, I love you. We are unlovely. But he clothes us in his righteousness. Won't you trust in that Jesus? See your own sinfulness, your unloveliness. We cannot be made lovely. Look to Jesus and see our utter dependence on our God. See the beauty of our Jesus. Because we, the unlovely, are made lovely by Jesus. And for his glory. Amen. Let us pray.